I'm excited to be here. So um, I was thinking about this week about when I was a, a kid in school, and when I was in school, I went to this Christian school that does not exist anymore called Maranatha Christian Center. Does anyone remember? I know I've talked to Indy about it. Nick, you remember? Oh, okay. So it was on 72nd Oak, and now it's a charter school. There's our, there's our infamous crest. Yeah, I think, interestingly enough, there was, when I was in high school, like three high schools or three schools who were known as the Crusaders. And for some reason, all these Christian schools thought, like, let's be known as the Crusaders. Like, there's no historical baggage there whatsoever we should be concerned about. Uh, and interestingly enough, like, all three schools... Uh, two of those schools who were known as the Crusaders do not exist anymore, this being one, and Denver Christian, thankfully, has changed their name. I think they're, last time I was there, there's something, something like Thunder or something, so uh, they've, they've wisened up, thankfully, over the years. Uh, but this was our school crest, and uh, not only did I attend there, but my mom was a teacher at Maranatha Christian Center, and, you know, the challenge of, like, has anyone here had, like, your mom or dad be a teacher when you were at the school, it's, is that a yes? Um, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> For the kid, it's not so fun. I, I, like, I remember, like, um, I, I, my daughter has a lot of energy, and I kind of see where she gets it from, and I think back, like, oh, that, I was that kid. And um, so, like whenever I got in trouble, and I, you know, I was the good kid relatively, but sometimes I had trouble focusing, I guess. So I'd, I'd like, you know, I'd make, I love paper footballs. In fact, whenever you, I think I did this with, when we had lunch, Andy, is whenever I get like the, the, uh, the silverware that has the paper on it, I always make paper footballs out of it. And that's what I do a lot in school to entertain myself, like paper footballs and who are the stars that you'd make? Do you remember those? folding stars. If someone remembers, can, could show me how to make it again, I would be f- eternally grateful because every time I make a football in a restaurant, I try to put them together. I'm like, anyway, um, I digress. So, you know, what, what often happens when I do these little football things, like a, a teacher would catch me, of course, and they'd, he'd like, I remember this one teacher, he'd, he'd get my football and he'd like put it in my mom's box. So it was disappointing, to say the least. And uh, there was one time, though, that it, it particularly was problematic um, uh, that my mom was the teacher there. So I think it was when I was in seventh grade, and uh, when I was in Maranatha Christian, they had, they had the elementary go one through six, and it was junior high. Boy, that's an ancient word, right? Seventh and eighth, and then, you know, high school, the rest. So when I was in seventh grade, I had this friend from uh, sixth grade named Jeremy Polson, and Jeremy is actually a teacher now at another Christian school named Bellevue Christian, and I see him here and there occasionally. But Jeremy and I were really good buds in sixth grade, spending time together, um, you know, spending the night at each other's house and all that. For some reason, when seventh grade happened, like, you know, there's this, there's this change of scenery, and our, our friendship kind of like you know, it changed and it morphed. And, I, and for whatever reason, I don't remember exactly what was all involved in it, but um, we, had this, we had this conflict. I remember it was, it was after school, and, and, and kind of the after school programming there was we we're hanging out at the gym. And in the gym, it was it's almost, if you'd, it wasn't a huge gym. It's kind of like this cafeteria and then the gym behind us 
kind of was the, the actual gym. And there's this catwalk that went around the whole thing. And the, the, the upper level, p- teachers could come from their classrooms, walk along the catwalk, and then kind of behind me, if you imagine, was the administration offices. So Jeremy and I were, for some reason, getting in an argument. And I think, I think looking back, uh, it may part of it was like, for some reason, when I was in, when I was in uh, middle school, so to speak, um, my parents did not have a lot of money. And I think I kind of became aware of some of that, um, I don't know, kind of, when you become aware of it, kind of was, I kind of became aware of it, and then I kind of, I think kind of got jealous of my friend Jeremy, and his family wasn't loaded by any perspective, but it, it, you know, I kind of became aware of kind of the economic differences and the opportunities that he had that I didn't have, and there were some things said, and I got frustrated, and um, we got into a, a fight in the middle of, uh, and to be fair, uh, it wasn't really a good fight. Like, it wasn't even, like, worth being called a fight. I think if I remember right, like, he smacked me maybe a couple times in my chest, and I kicked him maybe twice, and that was the extent of our fight. But the problem was, right as this was happening, my mom was on the catwalk right above us, and she said, oh my goodness, I can't believe, like, she screamed down, I can't believe I'm the one seeing this. So that was, yeah, this really happened. She does not believe me. So she drags us, we get, we get dragged off to the administration offices, and I'm sitting there, and because I was such, in that time, a goody two-shoe, they only gave me, uh, they gave us each um, two detentions instead of what would have been the automatic suspension. So, you know, I was such a quiet, goody two-shoe kid, I remember uh, the first detention, see what they do, normally do in like homeroom or something, is they'd announce like, oh, you know, Karina has detention tonight. You kind of get, you kind of get like shamed in front of your entire class. And so the first, the first detention, they like, um, they were nice and they didn't announce it. But the second, the second detention, I remember the teacher announced like, oh, Lauren has detention. And everyone was like, oh, Lauren has detention. It was kind of this big, this big uh, embarrassing thing. But um, I was thinking about that in relation to what we know as the fight or flight, um, you know, the fight or flight, what's it called? The uh, response, thank you. The fight or flight response. So I was, I was kind of in this situation where, um, you know, I was getting riled up against my friend Jeremy, and the only thing I knew what to do then was to kind of to fight. And, and I kind of blamed that, that I didn't really actually get a chance to fight. Forever since then, I kind of just was like, became just the flight mechanism where I just kind of just run away and just kind of passively take things. And, but we know like the two basic reactions as we're taught by scientists is this fight or flight response, which is a physical reaction to perceived danger. So when we're con- confronted with something that we perceive as a threat to our existence, our brain jumps into action, our hormones, it throws a bunch of hormones into our body, uh, our, our heart gets are racing and we convert a bunch of stuff into energy so we can be ready to go. Uh, so our muscles can tense up, you know, and our vision narrows and we're ready to either fight for our lives or run for our lives. And uh, evolutionary biologists imagine this was a helpful thing when we were, you know, facing what, saber toothed tigers, so to speak, or other prehistoric dangers. And uh, were, did, did humans, I guess it depends on who you ask. Did humans have to deal with dinosaurs? No. Okay. Getting a strong no. Um, 
<laughs> Generally, though, uh, this was helpful in our you know, prehistoric past, but it's not always so helpful in our modern 21st century lives because our body's propensity to turn into this fight-or-flight response often does more harm than good. Because uh, stressful situations such as you know, a deadline at work or getting stuck in traffic or having an argument with our partner or spouse often falsely tricks our body into thinking that we're in danger and we're either like putting up our dukes or, or running away from the situation, uh, which is neither helpful, I can attest, when you're in the conflict uh, with your spouse, neither is helpful, uh, or other, some other conflict. And, and sure, you might say, like, we don't actually get into, most of the time, we don't actually get into fistfights, and we don't literally actually run away, usually, but um, we've actually, I think, found 21st century ways to act out these prehistoric uh, responses. So the term ghosting, anyone familiar with ghosting? The term ghosting, I think, would be a good example of the flight mechanism. So uh, all of us are hip, right, with what you know, teen young people slang these days. So for those who are not, ghosting, I guess, refers to um, ending a relationship suddenly without any real explanation and withdrawing from all communication. So like in this example, this girl says, hey, I miss you, nothing. She says, hello, nothing, question mark, nothing. Just drops off the face of the earth. And, you know, I, I've, I can't say I've been ghosted, thankfully, uh, in at least a romantic relationship, but um, people do this all the time. It's kind of odd. Like, I remember I had this guy who, uh, before I met Paul, who I was talking to about being a worship leader, and we, were, we had this long conversation, and we were supposed to have this meeting uh, on a Monday, and I talked to him on Saturday, like, hey, we're, we're getting together. Yes. And he's like, oh, and, and then I think Sunday he texts me or something, he's like, hey, I can't make it. So I'm like, okay, we'll try another time. And then, you know, I text him, like, that next week, nothing. Email him, nothing. Call him, nothing. It's just like, he just ghosted me. And I, and I think it's like, it's a 21st century mechanism for us to, to run from a conflict, even though before the conflict has happened, this perceived danger that we're going to have. So it's essentially a preventive action uh, to run from a perceived danger. Now, the other, uh, the other uh, prehistoric response, I think, that we use 21st century tools is what some of you might be familiar with, what I call, and others call it, the Twitter burn. Any active Twitterers, tweeters? Any tweeters? No tweeters. So I had to, I had to like, uh, redact this to protect, um, to protect the innocent. Uh, this is a good example of a good old Twitter burn. So somebody, I'm not going to say who this is, said we must keep evil out of our country. And someone else, I'm not going to say who it is, responded, what time should we call your Uber? So like a good burn, good Twitter burn there. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting a lot of, this is getting a lot of good response. You can, you can fill in the blanks, I'll tell you later, if you're really curious to tell you later. But you could probably guess, you probably guess who it was, just think about it. Um... So anyway, um, the Twitter burn is usually something a user makes 
to, to be cutting or divisive or sarcastic in response to a previous post. Uh, so the intent is to make this previous post or poster look foolish or, or stupid. Usually we do it into response to posts that, uh, you know, offend us or upset us. So we take that, we take that fight response and we funnel all of it into creating this awesome Twitter burn. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, like, all of our, of our energy gets consumed into our thumbs dialing up this, what, what is it, 280, 280 uh, character response. You know, it's so, so it's for, as, for as evolved as we think we are, and as advanced as we think we are in 2019, we often simply use our advanced technological tools to revert to our prehistoric behaviors. But what else are we supposed to do, Right? We're still, it seems, presented with the only choice of either running away or fighting back, forgetting there are other options. So what are the other options, and how can we respond in a healthy way, and how do we evolve, so to speak, beyond our basic evolutionary processes? I'm glad you asked. Interestingly enough, Jesus, Jesus shows us a better way, what we'll call today a third way. Today we're continuing our called and sent uh, message series in which we're exploring how Jesus calls us to follow and then sends us out to go and share God's love and mission. So if you've been, uh, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you've been a church at all, you've probably heard the term to turn the other cheek, right? This was first spoken by Jesus during a message he delivered, kind of a sermon we'll call it, uh, given by Jesus and later written down. He was speaking to a group of people and trying to give them practical advice about how to live out the ways of God on earth. And in the section of Scripture we're going to read here today from Luke, uh, Jesus tells another part we probably heard often that is not uh, any easier, the importance of loving one's enemies. So if, you, if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to be reading from the, the book of Luke, uh, chapter 6. We'll have it on the screen here also, but it's uh, Luke 6, starting in verse 28. If I can find it here. Like I said, so Jesus is talking to some people. I'm sorry, verse 27. So Luke 6, 27 says, but I, but I say to you, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless them who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So it's a, it's a famous text from where we get the, the golden rule, so-called, of doing unto the others as you'd have them do unto you, to love your enemies, and then this famous well-known thing of turning your cheek. 
Now, before we get too much into uh, what it means or what Jesus was trying to say, there's some things we should understand about the people that Jesus was speaking to. So, um, the people Jesus was speaking to, the people that largely followed him in the first century, were what we'd call the peasant class, very poor, destitute people. And these were people speaking to, or Jesus was speaking to, that were often getting beat up, abused, and mistreated. They were very poor people who were at the bottom of the social ladder, social class ladder, and they often faced abuse both from those at higher levels of the social class and also from their own fellow citizens, and also, if we forget, the occupying uh, Roman soldiers who were there. So when Jesus told these people to love their enemies, these people were probably very well aware of who their enemies were, for they were literally confronted probably with their enemies every single day. You know, we see a police officer, and we say like, oh, there's someone who's going to keep me safe. These people, they saw a, poli- uh, a police officer in their time was something who was a threat who had invaded their country, someone who didn't care about them whatsoever. So when Jesus told them to do good to those who hated them, to bless them who cursed them, and to pray for those who mistreated them, these were the people who were being cursed, who were being mistreated and looked down upon on a daily basis by almost everyone in their society. So looking back, it seems a little unfair that Jesus would just tell them to keep on taking the abuse. Or at least, that's how this text has really traditionally been understood. You know that we should just turn the other cheek and keep taking it on the chin because somehow that's what God wants us to do. That somehow we're honoring God and getting beat up. I don't think that's what Jesus intended. Some biblical scholars suggest a third alternative to the usual two-part choice of either passive acceptance or violent resistance, something that's commonly been referred to as the third way of Jesus. But if we, and if we look deeper in the cultural context in which Jesus spoke, we can see that this text is not simply an appeal to continued acquiescence to mistreatment, but rather a powerful alternative to resistance, violence, resisting violence and oppression in the way of Jesus. So, uh, three common examples again are um, turn the other cheek, uh, give away your your shirt if they take your coat, and then in in Matthew where the same story is, uh, the text actually says to go the extra mile. So let's let's imagine those three examples. So. Um, I'm going to do something different. I need a volunteer. Real quick. Volunteer. Randy. Come on. Volunteer. We're doing dif- different today. Got to wake everybody up. Okay. So the good news is, Randy, you get to slap me. So this is the good news. I mean, please don't do it literally because for the sake of this mic. Well, this is, here's the thing. You have to slap me. So in the, in the ancient world, we got to work on our stage presence here, right? Imagine the camera so they can all see us. So in the ancient world, the master or superior slapped using the backhand. So since the left hand was, you know, no good, sorry lefties out here, uh, a slap was done across the cheek. So if you slap me, please don't do it hard. <laughs> slap me, boom. Uh, my cheek is this way, if you can see it out there. 
Now, so Jesus said to turn the other cheek, okay? So he can't, he's either going to smack me right in the nose or he's going to, he's going to, yeah, come that way. And again, you can't use your left hand. So he's going to smack me either with a closed fist or an open hand. But here's the thing, that is how equals fought in the ancient world. So when he, he smacks me, smack me again, boom, I'm turning the other cheek. He's trying to insult me as a lesser than. I'm turning the other cheek and saying, if you're going to punch me, you're going to have to punch me as an equal. Okay? Second thing is, um, no, no, you're not done yet. So what's our, what's our second thing? Oh, yeah. Even give your sh... Yeah. <laughs> This is good. See? <laughs> All right, so, so again, we'll, we'll, uh, we won't do it for real for the sake of y'all. Um, <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to right, run way over today. Um, so again, in, in the ancient world, people often use their cloak, their outer cloak, as a form of down payment. So if, uh, Tom, you, uh, if you loan me some money... I'd give you my cloak, or I'd give Randy my cloak as, and Randy, you can sit down. Thank you for your help. Let's give Randy a hand. Uh, so if, if Randy or, or, or Tom or Randy loaned me some money, I'd give them my cloak as a down payment. And the rule was supposed to be because that was basically your only form of really protection against the elements, basically like your, your home in a way. Um, your, the, Tom or Randy was supposed to give me that back at the end of the day because it was like my protection against the elements. So, so when Jesus is saying, if someone takes your coat and is not willing, to, what's implied is they're not willing to give it back, you're just going to say, well, you want my shirt? You can have it all. Essentially, you're exposing yourself naked in front of them, and again, they are the one who's seeing you naked, which was frowned upon in that society, with the point being, you're saying, hey, if you're going to leave me exposed by not giving me back my outer jacket, you might as well take it all. Just leave me totally destitute. The third thing, going the extra mile, is again, in, in first century uh, Palestine, when it was occupied by Roman soldiers, uh, Roman soldiers could, could often conscript a peasant or, uh, you know, whoever they were, into carrying their pack for them. So they just grab somebody, like, take, like grab Korean and say, carry my stuff, and they could make these people take their stuff just for miles and miles and miles, leaving these peasants, you know, miles and miles away from their home, and just kind of messing up the entire social order. So the word is, is that, you know, the, the Roman up, uh, superiors realized that this was kind of messing everything else up, and said, you can only conscript a peasant to take your pack a mile. So if, if, if I had, was the Roman soldier and I, I gave my pack to Karina and she was carrying it for a mile, when that mile hit, Jesus is saying to, to keep going that extra mile because imagine the craziness of, of the Roman soldier trying to pull away from the peasant the pack so that they wouldn't get in trouble. I mean, that kind of throws everything, this like social chaos and that the, the point is um, that Jesus was trying to make it that we shouldn't just keep taking abuse and mistreatment in the name of God, but rather there's an alternative to the violence or passive 
acceptance that was so common throughout that, pro, that, that period. Because again, Jesus was expected over and over again to be this violent revolutionary who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what people expected so much of him. And the other option was what, what was called the Essenes, which were a group of people who just kind of abandoned society and lived out in the desert. And they just kind of said, oh, whatever, we're just going to avoid it all and not be a part of it and just going to let it be over here, but we're not going to have anything to do with it. So these options on one end, like just become this violent revolutionary and try to overthrow Rome, which happened again and again and again throughout that society, or just kind of leave, leave it all behind and forget about it and, and just passively accept it. But Jesus said, no, there is another way, with the point being that these actions could have a profound effect upon the other person, often putting that other person in the uncomfortable situation of having to confront their own actions of, misjust, of mistreatment and injustice. And importantly, though, and this is important to remember, that if these actions are done out of anger or resentment, such actions could easily turn the victim into the victimizer. This is why Jesus said, love your enemies, and to do these actions out of love. Because if not, it would be so easy just to play into those same narratives. You know, I, I, I am well aware of how easy it is to respond with revenge when we're angered, how easy it is to reply with something snarky and sarcastic and cutting, and how good it feels. Man, does it feel good to win that latest round of Twitter, right? But here's the thing. When we respond with violence, whether it be literal or metaphorical, and sticks and stones may break bones, but I believe words hurt as well. When we respond with violence, we're seeking humiliation, not transformation. And Jesus was and is about transformation, not humiliation. With Jesus, there's no such thing as winners and losers. There's only supposed to be winners. There's no one who doesn't deserve love. There's no one who isn't created in the image of God. In Jesus' mind, there's no one outside of God's redemptive purposes in the way of Jesus, redemption, transformation is always the goal. So how do we do that exactly? I've got to be honest and say, I don't know. So let me, let me take a minute here and just say one of our core values here at Mission Gathering is uh, courage, and that we say that it's the, the courage to be real. And I want to be real and say like, that I've never really had to do these things because I've never been mistreated because of my sexuality or my ethnicity or my social status. So I've never really been the oppressed one for who these words were first intended. So I can't tell you how to do that. One of, another, one of our other values is uh, valuing diversity and inclusivity. So I thought, what a great opportunity for, to bring in some examples of diverse people who have done this through the years. So 
uh, I thought we'd bring in this morning some diverse voices who've done this throughout the year. So here's some examples. Uh, so the, one of the first ideas about how we, we create Jesus' third way, live into Jesus' third way, is seize the moral initiative. So what was it a couple of years ago? was the no DARPL action. And what was that common, the rallying cry, right? Water is life. I mean, that, how can you get more moral than that? Like, water is life. Like, they seized the moral initiative and said, this is what's right. This is the moral initiative. Water is life. Another, option, another idea of Jesus' third way is finding alternatives to, val- to violence. And Dr. King did this throughout his... his uh, his time, that he had encouraged people to march as an outlet for their energy uh, and anger. Another one was, another one is asserting one's own dignity. And I was reading about the Memphis sanitation worker strike, and one of their key things was this idea that I'm a man. And they didn't feel like they were being treated equally or as valued in that time, so they wanted to assert their own human dignity and say, I am a man, I am deserving of equal pay and equal treatment. And so on. Uh, another one, a light-hearted one, is to meet force with humor. And I was thinking about, I don't know if you've seen this, this uh, gay marriage spoof where this, this, um, his father walks in and he's like, ah, oh, those gays want to legalize marriage. And he's like, and his wife's like, oh, does that mean you're going to have to divorce me? And she's like, and he's like, oh, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Or that's something like his daughter says, if the gays get married, does that mean that you're going to stop loving me? And, she, and he's like, yes, uh, let's hope it doesn't come to that. So again, spoofing force with humor. Another one is exposing the injustice. Uh, so this was a few years ago. Uh, the Troy Library was threatened with closure because there wasn't enough money to pay for. And, and folks kept defeating and defeating and defeating uh, tax measures. So this group came up with this idea that, that they would pretend that they're for book burning. The idea behind it being a vote to close a library is a vote to essentially burn books. So they did this whole social media campaign, and in the end, they revealed themselves to be for the library, and they changed the entire conversation from you know, not wanting to pay for taxes to support the library to be about, uh, you know, supporting things that are in the society's best interest, so to speak, like the library. So exposing the injustice. Uh, I think of another one being Stand Your Ground, and uh, this picture is from Stonewall, New York, and I think that is a good example of uh, people who are being oppressed eventually saying, I'm going to stand my ground. Uh, and then finally, I think the last and best example is being willing to suffer. And we see, I think, classically in Jesus, who resisted again and again the expectation of others to be a violent revolutionary, but he also refused to passively take the abuse and injustice that was happening around him. He repeatedly criticized the powers that be. If you remember the, the story of when he went into the temple... He threw over these tables, angering both the Romans and the ruling temple authorities. Yet in the end, he was willing to suffer because he believed that transformation was possible. And what was the testimony 
Do you remember of the Roman soldier who was standing there at the crucifixion? He said, truly this was the Son of God. You know, Jesus' third way shows us how to resist dehumanizing actions of others without responding in kind. By instead looking at them in love, believing transformation is possible, and presenting them with alternative perspectives. And again, we have to, we have to remember that love has to be the foundation of our actions, treating others how we want to be treated rather than how they, how they deserve, to be frank, right? Because when we, seekly, when we simply seek to humiliate or win the day, we've only perpetuated the cycle of violence and dehumanization. It's only by acting out of love, God's love, seeing God in the other person, and believing that transformation is possible, that our actions can persuade and encourage the other person to change their behavior. I think that the way of Jesus offers us a way to resist mistreatment and abuse while still honoring the dignity and humanity of the other person and leads us to act out of love in the belief that transformation is possible. Because again, that's what, that's what Jesus was about, and that's why he believed that message so much so that he took that, he took that to the cross. He was willing to suffer because he believed in that message. So as we come to our time of communion, we remember the good news. We remember God's love being made manifest in Jesus. And I guess we could say, I guess we could say, right, that I guess we could say that that God believed in us. God believed in our redemption. Jesus believed in our transformation.